God's Word. That's one Peter. I'd love you to look at that. I think it'd be fair to say most of us quite enjoy sport, and if we're really honest, we find it quite funny when things don't work out. I heard this week about greyhound racing. I don't know how many of you know about greyhound racing. You know, they just run round and round this track. And the way that they get these dogs to run around this track is there's a little rabbit that just basically goes whizzing around, and the dogs see the rabbit and go racing after it, and that's how they do greyhound racing. Well, I heard the story this week that um, at one of these races, uh, just after it had started, the rabbit blew up. <laughs> so it shoots off. Suddenly the rabbit blows up. What happens is the dogs don't know what to do. This is true. Totally happened this way. Dogs don't know what to do. Two of them ran so fast in a straight line, they hit a wall and broke a couple of ribs. Yeah, I'm not a great dog fan, so I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> Three or four of them just got lost around the track. And, so, and the rest of them literally just looked at the crowd, because there's people that are watching this, you know, betting money, barking like crazy. What they found, discovered this week, is not a single dog finished that race. Now you think, Pete, what on earth has this got to do with 1 Peter? 1 Peter is a letter writing to Christians to say, I want you to finish the race. The danger is so often things can go wrong and we can get distracted and we can give up. We can hurt ourselves and forget the purpose of it. And what he's doing, Peter, he's writing to this church to say, come on, I want you to keep going. This is the race. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that there was this sort of Wally disciple, as I called him, called Peter. He was the one that actually, you know, tried to walk on water, but then sort of sunk a little bit. He was the one that denied Jesus. He was the one that even rebuked Jesus. And yet here he is now. He's been changed by being filled with the Spirit. And he's writing to this church saying, come on, I want you to be full of hope. I don't know how many of you have seen the film Shawshank Redemption. I think it's a really good film. It says this, fear can hold you prisoner. Hope can set you free. Fear can hold you prisoner. Hope can set you free. And I believe that what we're looking at, the verses today, is Peter writing to the church and saying, actually, what I want you to do is I want you to know this hope. Because I think so many of us, whether we'd admit to fear or guilt, we can feel trapped. And Peter is writing to the church. So let's read these verses, and then we're going to go through them for a few minutes. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 and 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised that the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Uh, <laughs> there's some tough verses, aren't there? I was uh, working in the office this week. I was working across in Harrow in an office, and I told them that I was preaching on suffering. And the guys in the office said, God, I'm glad I don't come to your church. Peter has had this theme. It's a bit like, I don't know, if you go to the seaside and you buy a stick of rock, and there's the letters that are right the way through the rock, the, the theme almost throughout this whole letter has been, actually, being a Christian is tough. I don't know if you're a Christian or not. Some people think of Christianity as a crutch for the weak. 
Peter is writing to them and saying, it's a machete for the adventurous. He's saying this is for people that want to go and have a go. And this is, this is not an easy thing to do. If you follow Christ, actually, this is going to be an adventure. And it's going to be challenging. He said right at the beginning of this book, 1 Peter 1 verse 6, in this you rejoice, though for now you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. When I was a kid, my parents took me to church. Um, I haven't got any actually on this Bible, but in those days we used to get stickers and you'd stick them on your Bible that said things, you know? And it was almost like, you know, Jesus is the answer for everything. And it was all these positive things. Nobody ever gave me a sticker for my Bible that says, suffer. You know, some Christians, you go into their homes and they've got verses written on the fridge. You know what I'm saying? And it's often things like trusting God and he'll bless you. I've got one in my bedroom, to be honest. It was from my wedding day. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Proverbs 3. Not many of us take this verse. You may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. But I tell you, I think this is part of Christianity. James, another letter, he says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy. Paul, who wrote 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament, also writes... Everyone who wants to live a godly life, to Timothy, this is 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Golly, that's really challenging, isn't it, when I think about that? I don't know about you, I so often come to Jesus, and and even this morning I want to come and worship him, but actually when I come and listen to what Jesus says, I think it's a challenge. When I look at the gospel, it's a challenge. Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew, The Gospel of Matthew, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. He says the same thing in Mark 13. He says the same thing in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me. I think this has been borne out throughout church history. Paul wrote most of his letters in the New Testament from the prison. I know that we've got a guy visiting us this morning. I went and pointed him out and embarrassed him, but I know his name is Christian. There's a character in a, a book called Pilgrim's Progress called Christian. Pilgrim's Progress was written by John Bunyan, and John Bunyan wrote it from prison. Martin Luther, when he wrote the gospel from England, England sorry, he wrote it into German, did the work in prison. You can go right the way through church history and just think, God, he's in prison, he's in prison, he's in prison. People are still suffering for being a Christian today. If you don't believe me, look up on the web, open doors, and you will discover literally people are dying for their faith every year. I would like to even ask this question, sobering question. I'm about to bring the hope. I'm just trying to bring the reality. I think it's surprising if we're not persecuted. You see, what I bring is a message that there's a God that you give an account to and that fundamentally we can be selfish inside. What I bring is a message that actually there is a God in heaven that we need to bow before. One commentator said this. It's a bit of a long quote. I should have stuck it up here. I'm sorry I haven't. We may ask ourselves whether perhaps our freedom 
from persecution and even our unpopularity is not solely due to the good-humoured, tolerant spirit of our non-Christian countrymen, but also in part the result of our not taking Christ and his claims upon us too seriously. Were we more uncompromising and consistently Christian, might it be otherwise? He's almost saying that actually if you were really red-hot and radical and raw for Jesus, would it mean that you'd end up being persecuted? Chester and Timmis, and I, I don't think I've got the book here today, I'm sorry. I've used this book, oh, here I have, loads. This is my sixth week out of six. Uh, uh, you know, I've recommended this, would recommend it again. says this, perhaps our lack of direct opposition should lead us to examine the nature and extent of our faithfulness to the Saviour. In China, we know that when they persecuted, the church just mushroomed. We know in Cambodia that was true. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to preach here. <laughs> oh, golly, beat yourselves up. You've got to persecute yourselves. You're in for real trouble. You know, I know that can seem very heavy. What I think is Peter was trying to bring them some hope. Now, I don't personally feel, and I don't know all your situations, that any of us are persecuted yet for our faith. But actually, you could be going through some real difficulties. And this book says, actually, there is hope. You could be going through financial difficulties. You could be going through emotional difficulties. You could be going through mental difficulties. You could be going through relational difficulties. I don't know your situation, but what Peter is writing is saying this. There is hope. And I would love to bring a sense of hope to you from this book. I've got a few things that we're going to look at. Hope. Why do you get hope even though things are tough? Why? Because you are identifying with Christ. It says here, and, and I could bring out chapter after chapter after chapter, and it's a short book. If you've never read it, I'd encourage you to look at it. In chapter 1, it says that actually, chapter 1, verse 11, that you know the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Peter was saying, if you think about who Christ is, it will be difficult and glories will follow. He says the same in chapter 2, verse 21. He says the same in chapter 3, verse 18. He says the same in chapter 4, verse 1. He says the same in chapter 5, verse 1. Every single chapter he talks about, he talks about the Christ who suffers, the Messiah who goes through difficulties. I tell you, you can know some hope because actually we're identifying with Christ. Now, you might think, golly, that doesn't bring me a lot of hope. <laughs> okay, so uh, if you've seen the Passion, you know that Christ had a tough time. If, you, if you've read the Bible, you know that some of these people had a tough time. This is why it brings hope. Because the Bible says that if you suffer with him, you share the glory. So actually, if you're identified with him, you can actually know something of the, the liberty and the freedom that comes. That is why we are connecting ourselves with Jesus Christ. We are not alone. We are identified with him. Why else do we get hope? Peter writes to the church and says, you can now hope because you're not on your own. He says in chapter 4, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. The Holy Spirit is inside of us to bring us hope. I mean, that's the beauty of it, isn't it? If you're not a Christian, you could know Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean to become a Christian? Becoming a Christian is this. Basically, you recognize you've done things wrong in your life. You recognize that there's things that are less than perfect, whether you've said it, whether you've thought it, sometimes not even doing the good that you know you should do. The Bible just lumps all that together and says it's sin, a word we don't like to use much. 
it says that actually because there's something gone wrong, there's a price to pay. Jesus paid the price. He died in your place. And if you come to him and you say, I'm sorry, because he rose again, he can offer you forgiveness. I don't know if you know that today, but you could know that. And then inside of you, you could know this hope. This is not me just trying to be some positive spin on it. It's not just trying to say, oh, come on. No, actually, you could know the spirit of Jesus Christ living in you. If you know hope, it makes a huge difference. I'm sure I'll get an email of somebody complaining about some of the examples that I'm using this morning. Um, this, is, this is a true study that they did. They took a hold of rats and they put them in water and they discovered that if a rat could just swim and swim and swim and, you know, never got anywhere, it would last about seven hours before it died. I don't know how many rats they did this on. I'm not going to go down that line. What they then discovered is that if they lifted the rat out just for a couple of seconds and then put it back in the water... And then when it got really, really tired, I don't know how they worked it out. I don't know if they had a heart monitor on the rat or whatever. You know, they lifted it out again, a couple of seconds, put it back in the water. They discovered that the rat could last for 20 hours instead of seven. Because they said the hope that he might hit land kept him going for almost three times as long. I tell you, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and gives us hope. And so sometimes you think, man, I can't do it, I can't do it, I'm sinking. <laughs> it's a bad illustration, isn't it, after the rat, I know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, you feel like you're speaking in bubbles. And actually, I think the Holy Spirit is saying, come on, I'm going to lift you up and give you some hope. And, you think, and that, that is who he is. That is what some think of what he does. I think that if you're suffering and things are difficult, you can know hope because... There's the care of the Father. It says in 1 Peter 3, verse 17, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil, the difference about being a Christian is this. We don't live in this empty blank world and we think, oh, golly, what's going on? It's cruel and it's hard. What we know is that there is a Father in heaven that watches over us. What we know, therefore, is that our sufferings are not futile, but there's a point. We don't understand God. We, we cannot fathom his ways, but we can trust his character. And so what we discover is that actually if we believe in a father, it gives us hope. Not because everything's fine, not because necessarily everything turns out easy, but actually we know there's a father in heaven. Peter's writing to them, and he said, look, Christ identified, you can identify Christ, you can know the Spirit, you can know the Father. He also says this, you can know the support of a family. That is why I just say, look, I love us being part of the church. Yeah, we are meant to be part of a family together. This is all part of what we are, who we are. You know, we don't have to do these things. If life is tough for you, that's why I love you. You turn up and you get your free tea and coffee at 10 o'clock and just have a biscuit and chat with people. Why? Because I can know the love of the family. I'm not on my own. He mentions this again, and, and I'm, trying, I'm trying to say this. Peter has these themes that keep running through. So if you were to take notes, he talks about the support of the family in chapter 1, verse 22, in chapter 2, verse 17, in chapter 3, verse 18, in chapter 4, verse 8, in chapter 5, verse 14. He says in chapter 5, verse 14, greet one another with a holy kiss. What's he trying to say? Come on, we're family. 
We're family. You know, that, that's the whole thing, isn't it? Yeah, my daughter sat in the front row and she's worried that I'm about to greet her with a holy kiss. <laughs> Come on, it's biblical. Don't hold back from... It's funny, we can so often take that verse out of context, can't we? When I was a young person, I was raised to go to church. I know that some young people, it's like your parents take you along, you have to go to church like this, you know what I'm saying? The reality is that I I said to the pastor of the church at the time, I said, look, it says in the Bible, you greet one another with a holy kiss. There's a few girls here I'd like to greet with a holy kiss. The pastor said to me, you can greet one with a holy kiss if you greet them all with a holy kiss. You see, this is not just little groups within the church. This is everybody. This is everybody knowing one another. It's not just me literally and my daughter. It's me saying, actually, we're all family together here. He was saying, come on, actually, this is how you express it. We're all family here together. You are not called to be on your own. Yet You cannot get married on your own, can you? I mean, can you imagine it? I, I, I dare say now, if you looked it up on the internet, somebody's done it. But I don't think it's possible, is it? I mean, could you imagine, you know, if this was like a church service and, and you know, I decide to marry myself. I, I'd walk down the aisle and I'd think, which side would I stand? I'll stand this side and then I might jump this. I mean, it's just ludicrous, isn't it? Which side are you going to sit? You know, the groom or the bride? Well, I'm with both of them. You can sit wherever you fancy. I mean, it would just seem an absolutely ridiculous idea, wouldn't it? Nobody gets married on their own. There's always two people involved. You cannot be a Christian on your own. We've got to be connected to others, haven't we? I think sometimes the danger is even in the Christian life, we're thinking that I'm walking down the aisle, I'm on me, oh, I can pretend to be, how are you doing today? Yeah, well, I'm doing fine. Can I? No, no, we don't have to be on our own. That's why we keep talking about small groups. We don't have to be on our own. We're together. We're connected. Peter's writing to these guys and saying, look, actually, things are tough. Again, I haven't got a clue what's quite going on inside your life. You look a good-looking bunch. You know what I'm saying? You're smiling, you're happy, you're away. It looks like you're fine. I don't know what's going on underneath. But what I do know is this. Peter is writing to the church and saying, don't live it on your own. Don't live it on your own. I'm with you. We can be together. Family together. The fifth thing that Peter writes to, this fifth point of hope, I think is just amazing. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening, but rejoice as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. You may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Peter says you can know hope because this life is not the end. You know what I'm saying? We were chatting about this in the car yesterday. I don't know if you've seen the horrendous situation in America where they'd had this guy that basically kidnapped these three women and, and had them in the house, and he's just done a plea bargain, hasn't he? And what, what he's, he's bargained, basically, he's admitted his guilt, so they haven't got to give a, an account of what went on, and he's been given 1,000-year prison sentence. Now, you know, I mean, only the Americans could give a 1,000 years. People don't tend to live that long, but we won't go down those kind of roads, you know? I'm not here to insult our American brothers and sisters this morning. So my kids are saying, why on earth would anybody ask for a thousand-year sentence? Because if you look in the details, what he wanted to avoid was death. 
And so if he plea bargained, they said, you can have a thousand-year prison sentence and we won't kill you. And if, if all you believe is this life is it, you do anything you can to hang on to this life. But Peter is writing to the church and saying, this life is not what it's all about. He's actually saying there will be a day when God's glory is revealed and that will give us hope. You see, every wrong might not be righted in this life. Every injustice might not be addressed in this life. And if all we do is cling to this life, we'd be disappointed. Oh God, it's not fair, it's not fair. But actually, he says, you've got hope because we know that actually there is an afterlife. We do know the Bible says that Jesus is coming back in glory. I actually heard of... um, A Muslim saying to a friend, I feel sorry for the Christians because they've got no tomb to go and worship at. Well, it's true, we don't, because he rose. You know, I'm saying we're not in about, well, this is where our Lord is buried. We're not in about this. He wrote, that has changed everything. What that does is it gives me great confidence because he will come again. And therefore, I've got this hope, ultimate hope, Jesus rose I will rise with him. Martin Luther, that I told you, you know, translated the Bible into German. They said that on, in his diary, there was only ever two days. Now, I know he didn't have a smartphone. I know that it was a long time ago. You know, I know you could say paper was in short supply. No, it wasn't like that at all. It was in his heart. He said, there's two days in my diary. It's today and that day. He says, I want to live my life Today, I'm thinking about that day. You see, we can know that kind of hope. I'm not saying that it's not tough here. I'm not saying that as a Christian, you might not be overlooked for promotion at work. I'm not saying you, you might be ignored by friends or they might laugh at you and, you know, you, you go to church every Sunday morning when you're forgiving people. When, you, you know, people might think, oh, God, no, but actually what I do know is that we are offered a crown that never spoils or fades or perishes. We're living in the light of eternity. A year ago today, wasn't it? A year ago yesterday, the Olympics opened. I know that we can try and relive it a year on, but the reality is it's happened now, hasn't it? You know, it's almost like that's done and now we're moving forward. It's actually, we're not, we're not called to live with some hope that's about the past. We're called to live with some hope about the future. As a Christian, Peter is writing to them saying, come on, there is hope for the future. C.S. Lewis, who was a, a great academic, uh, he's based in Oxford, I believe, says this. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, thinking about heaven, they've become so ineffective in this. It's since we've largely ceased to think about heaven, we've become so ineffective. You see, the danger is, if we forget it, we just become like everyone else. The most toys wins. What I can grab for myself in this life now becomes the most important. Whereas actually, if we remember this hope that we've got, it changes life. I want to apply this in three quick ways, and then we're going to finish. There is a living hope that I think should radically change you in your material generosity. What do I mean by this? 
In this day and age, nobody's forced to bow before an idol of wood like they might have done in the Bible. In the Bible, you know, it says in the book of Daniel, they set up this huge, great statue. I was reading it this week. I can't understand it. It's something, you know, like 60 meters high and, you know, about six centimeters wide. It wasn't quite like that. But, you know, this is huge, great thing. And then basically, we don't have that now. But we do live in a materialistic society where we treasure what we can touch. Identity in our life is so often gathered by what we own, by what we have. Jesus said that we see things differently as Christians. We don't store where moth and rust can destroy. Adverts promise meaning, identity, and fulfillment through possessions. Jesus says true treasure is found in him. I would therefore say to us that if we're really going to live in the light of this hope, we need to be those that invest in eternity. Oh, I look at myself, guys. Really, you know what I'm saying? I just think, oh, can I, can I really say I'm living for eternity? Grace produces grace. If I sing about his grace to me, it's got to change my life. Gospel churches must be generous. We'd be offering hospitality. We'd be giving of our time. You see, fundamentally, we believe this. God owns everything. It's not mine. I'm just a steward. Let's suppose I've got all the money in Adam's bank account. I'm loaded. You know what I'm saying? Why is that? Because I know his wife's got a good job. You know, I'm not saying Adam's got a lot of money. You know, and if you said to me, hey, Pete, can I have some money? And I think, well, it's not mine, it's Adam's. Yeah, have as much as you like, you know what I'm saying? If that was, would that really be my mentality? Oh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. It's not mine, it's Adam's. You know, if he said, Pete, you can do with it whatever you like, I might say, Steve, come on, let's go out for a nice slap-up meal. Let's just have some great time together, you know what I'm saying? I might say, hey, hey, do, do you want this? Oh, do you need to buy a car? Hey, hey, do you need some clothing? Let me help here. I'd be thinking, great, it's wonderful. He's earning it, I'm giving it. What a great mentality. That's a steward's mentality, isn't it? Whereas if it's suddenly my account with my name on it, I can think, that's, that's taken me a long time to earn that. And maybe I can just be a little bit more tight, a little bit less generous. If we're really going to live in the light of eternity, we have this hope that thinks, I could be, you know, hey, if it's, if it's my car, well, it's the one God gave to me. I'd just like to give a, a, a real example about this. Some of you will know we did a baptism here. I think it's back in February now. We baptized a couple of people. We're hoping to baptize some more later this year. And we bring in this big sort of wooden pool, and then we put this cover in it, and we fill it with water. Well, obviously, the only way to get it here is in the back of somebody's car. And I used to have an old car, and I used to throw it in the back there, and we'd use a hose to fill it up and a pump to fill it out, get it out. And so you'd have this water, and you'd have all this, and I used to throw it in the old car, and I just, it didn't bother me at all. And then one time I changed my car. So, you know, it wasn't new. You know, I'm not trying to go, you know, I haven't got a big Merc. I'm not trying to say that. But it was a three-year-old car, and it, it was just much nicer and new to me. And I remember picking up this baptismal pool and putting it in the back of my car. And in my heart, I complained to God. I said, oh, God, it's not fair. Why do I have to move the baptismal pool? I said, look at the water going all over my car. And it's got these bolts, and it scratches the side of my car. I said, put the seats down. I'm sure it's going to damage the cushions. You know what I'm saying? And I felt God speak to me. 
said, Pete, you never complained moving it in the last car I lent you. I said, oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> if I don't complain now, would you lend me another one? <laughs> you know, it suddenly changed my mentality. And I think, how do we have that? Well, actually, our hope is not about this life. Our hope is about eternity. What if I genuinely believe that? It will impact my material possessions. It says in Acts 4, verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their own possessions. They shared it. This wouldn't just be true of our possessions. It would be true of our time. Actually, living in London, time is very precious. But when we live for eternity, it gives us a slightly different perspective. That's the hope that we have. Number two, how do we apply this hope? I would say this, relational generosity. You see, when we know the forgiveness of God towards us, we can forgive someone else. Sometimes, and I'm not saying this just to duck away because we're cowards, sometimes you don't even need to tell them what they've done wrong. Because it actually says in 1 Peter, love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't say, oh, it's got to be talked about or confronted. Sometimes you just love them anyway. Relationships are time intensive. So it's living life together. Actually, the way that we relate to one another should be different because of the hope that we have. If we really believe this hope, it should, it should change the way we live. If I think well, that this is my identity is caught up with him, maybe I wouldn't want a promotion. Because am I first and foremost about a successful person who's flying at work, or am I first and foremost a part of a community that's working together? Maybe some people say, I could work part-time so that I could serve in the project amongst the poor. I could give myself to helping out. You know what I'm saying? Suddenly our, our, our thinking changes completely. I was reading this story, in fact, it was one in the book here, about this, this lady, and I know that you guys take loads of pressure. I... I uh, commend Sam, because I know that he works in a job where he was told that if you actually walk out the office at six o'clock, you're never going to get anywhere in this life, because everybody works a lot later than that. And Sam thinks, well, no, I'm just going home. You know, I'm, a, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I want to be involved in the life of the church. Well, you know, you're not going to make manager. He's just made manager. Why is that? I think, well, actually, sometimes he's saying, well, look, how do I genuinely give to the important relationships, not just get sucked into something. Now, I'm not trying to knock people that are working hard. I'm just trying to say, how do we genuinely let the light of eternity impact the way that we live today? So I think time can be one thing. I think forgiveness is a big thing. I'll be honest, for me, I felt really challenged by God on this this week. I know I'll blow my eternal reward now, but I'm going to tell you because I hope it would help you. I prayed and fasted on Tuesday, and I was just I was driving around lots. So there you go. I was back in the car, moving a load of stuff for this new day, and I just kept praying, oh, God, you know, I'd love to hear you. And I just felt God bring me to this word forgiveness. And I thought, oh, yeah, what am I really like? And I kept thinking, I thought, oh, I've done these things, God. I'm really sorry. And I just felt, wow, I felt overwhelmed. God's forgiven me. When I thought about the cross, and we had this, I think Richard brought the word, didn't he, this morning. Think about Jesus. I kept thinking about, wow, the cross. I thought, you've forgiven me. 
But that's, you know, I suddenly realized the things I've done wrong. You've forgiven me. And so I start singing these songs. You know, I'm just in the car. I'm forgiven. I'm I'm forgiven like this. And what I noticed, and, you know, I'm not going to say it only lasted a day, but it was the most on Tuesday. The way I drove changed. Can you believe that? Because I suddenly realized God forgive me. So when somebody cut me up, I was on the North Circular. Normally I'd slam the horn, you know, give them a little wave. <laughs> In the name of Jesus. No, you know. But actually what I just thought, I thought, it doesn't matter. You can go in front. You know what I'm saying? I'm suddenly at this sort of line and it, is it that I've got a nudge and nudge? You know what I'm saying? Can, can I actually get on to the, the bumper of the car in front because I'm not going to let you in? <laughs> And I thought, yeah, fine, in you go. I'm forgiven. What does it matter that you just come in? Does it really matter? I'd like to feel this bit of tarmac's mine. But actually, if you want to come in, you say, I'm forgiven. I suddenly realized the way I was relating to people that day was changed. Why? Because inside I thought, I'm forgiven. And if I really know I'm forgiven, relationally it impacts how I connect to other people. I think that's one of the beauties of being a Christian. We are forgiven. The third thing, and there's loads of ways that I could have applied this, the third way that I think this hope should work out in us is prayer. You see, my hope is not in me, my hope is in him. My hope is in not my resources, but his. My hope is not in what I'm capable of doing, but what he's capable of doing. And I feel that we connect to him through prayer. It says in 1 Peter 5 verse 7, and I'd love to have picked out all these verses, but I'm trying to pick out the theme. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So I've loved it this week when people have taken a day off work and not leafleted, but prayed around the estates and prayed around Greenford and prayed around Southall. Actually, what we're doing is we're connecting to him. If we think that we're central to gospel growth, then our activity is always more important than prayer. But if we think God is central to the growth of this church, then we're pray. That's why I didn't catch it. That's why we do once a month a day of prayer and fasting. Actually, we say, come on, we genuinely believe it's great to pray. That's why I'm saying, you know, the first Wednesday of every month, we'll be here in the evening to pray. And I encourage you, give yourself to him. You see, if we really believe in this hope, it sets us free. I've mentioned before, and Chris is on holiday today, you know, I know it's that sort of season. I gather, I go to Chris's house every Wednesday morning and pray with him. So I turn up there, nine o'clock, quick cup of tea, by half past nine, we're praying. And then I pray for an hour, and then I jump on the bike, and I can be in an office in Harrow by, you know, 20 to 11. The danger is by the time I've sat down, turned the computer on, made myself another cup of tea, it feels like 11 o'clock. And I can think, oh God, I've not done a lot this morning. (laughs) And then I have to pause and think, no, actually, I've probably done the most effective thing of my entire day. I've prayed. And I would encourage us to try and think that way. Actually, when I'm praying, this is probably the most important activity that I'll be engaged in today. So Peter is writing to this church, and he's saying that, I know there can be some tough things, but I want to give you some hope. 
The hope is this, you're identified with Christ. The hope is you're filled with the Spirit. The hope is that you're the son of a father in heaven. The hope is you're part of a church family. The hope is that we live for eternity. And that it's not all going to happen here and now. And if we genuinely believe this hope, it will radically affect the way that we live. Leon Morris, he's a commentator, said this, in the New Testament, hope is always something which is as yet future, but which is completely certain. We're not just hoping, oh golly, will God be in a good mood, you know what I'm saying? Will he feel kindly towards me? We're in, in, in certainty that actually we have this hope. Hope, somebody else described, is faith on tiptoe. You know, there's that hope in God. That's what Peter is writing to the church about. Actually, I want you to know this hope. I know that Sam and the band will come back and they were going to lead us in a song. Just while they're getting ready, though, I would like to say, I'd like to pray for people that you think, actually, I could do with some hope. I don't want to embarrass people because I've been chatting to people and the church is small enough. I know some things that are going on in people's lives. I'm not here to embarrass you at all. But if you think, actually, Pete, I could do with some hope, whether it be something to do with work, whether it be something to do with looking for a job, whether it be looking for accommodation, whether you think, okay, actually, someone's not well in the family, actually, I could do with some hope. I don't just want Peter's letter here to be some theory. I'd like us to pray that you would know some hope in your situation. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to put up a hand. You don't need for me to know at all. You can just respond now, and I will pray for you. You think, oh God, I need hope. Then I want to pray that you would know hope in your situation, that you'd know the Father's heart towards you. You'd know the Spirit's power. You'd know the encouragement of the church. And then these guys will sing. We're going to pray. Jesus, I want to thank you that your word is so honest. It, it does say, look, it can be tough. It doesn't say being a Christian is just an easy walk in a park. But we do get this sense of hope. Hope because we know Jesus triumphed. Hope because the grave is empty. Hope because we know the Father is in charge. Hope because the Spirit lives inside of us. Hope because we're part of this family together. Hope because we live for eternity. I want to pray for anyone now that in their heart just saying, Oh God, I need some hope. God, anyone that it's it's felt a little bit, or even as I'm praying, I could just feel like pain in my chest. And I feel there's some people here that you just, oh God, I just, I felt like there's a tightness in my chest. I felt, oh golly, I just feel a bit, my head gets down. I've lost my hope. I want to pray that you receive hope again. That you'd be able to lift up your eyes, you'd be able to look to Jesus Christ, and you'd know something of the hope that we have in him. Amen.